The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, again, my name is Jeff Miller. Uh, I am the Willowwood MC Lear. I'm a church planning resident uh, here on staff at Sacred City. Uh, it's my joy and honor to be able to preach to you this morning. Uh, I want to take a step back. I want to catch us back up to where we were. Uh, we took last week off. We heard from Derek Puckett last week, and we were blessed by that. And uh, we were in chapter 13 of the book of Exodus. Before that, we've been uh, on a walk through the book of Exodus, uh, and we're going to continue on with that for the next several weeks and months. And uh, however long this takes us to walk through it, we're going to do it. But at the end of chapter 13, uh, we find out where the Israelites are. And what's going on with the Israelites is they have now uh, been exodus out of Egypt, and now they're being led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of uh, fire, okay? And I want to be careful. My wife is from the south, so when I told her that, she said, like, a pillow is leading them? And I said, no, a pillar, not a pillow. So, pill, pillar, okay? So, like, a column-like structure. So, a pillar of cloud is leading the people by day, and a pillar of fire by night. And where the pillar leads, the people follow. And it says that the people went out of Egypt equipped for battle. And we're not totally sure what that means. We're not, we don't know if that means that they had literally instruments in their hands uh, for some type of fighting, or it could simply mean that they went out in some sort of military fashion uh, to get out of the country in the best uh, exit form possible. Okay. So that's where we are. And you can imagine at this point, though, if you're uh, in this group of people being led by a cloud during the day and fire at night, you might start to have some questions as to what's going on. Where are we going? Where are we headed? Why are we doing this? And God is gracious and God is good uh, to his people. And he lets Moses in on exactly about uh, what's to go down here at the beginning of chapter 14. Okay, if you have a Bible this morning, this is where we are. We're going to spend uh, most of our time here this morning in Exodus chapter 14. So we want to encourage you to open it up to that. If you don't have one, there should be one uh, floating around at your feet somewhere. Uh, if you want to pull it up on your phone, uh, that's fine too. Just remember this is Bible time, not Facebook time. And I know sometimes those things get confused, but you can pull it up on there and, and, and feel uh, okay about it. Okay, so... Exodus chapter 14, the first few verses here, one through four. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of the name that Kim announced so perfectly. Between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, uh, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and they did so. So we find ourselves in the first few verses here. God's letting Moses in on exactly what's going to go down. He's giving him an inside look of here's how this is going to play out uh, over the next few uh, hours of your life. So he gives him this inside view and we see that uh, the Israelites are told to turn back. Now, the Israelites aren't necessarily going to see a problem with this just yet. 
They're just following the pillar, right? So they turn back in and they actually put themselves in a very compromising position. They're trapped between the wilderness and the Red Sea. Now, again, the Israelites don't know yet that this is a compromising position. They're just following. They're doing what they're told. They're, they're going where they're supposed to go. And we also find out that somewhere along the way, Pharaoh has some spies, apparently, that have been watching the Israelites. And he's going to say, we're going to take off after them. We're going to bring them back. We, these, we can't do without. And we'll get to that in just a second. But Pharaoh's people have seen that they're traveling. And when they change their direction, a report's going to come back to Pharaoh that the Israelites are lost. And now listen, here's what's going to happen. God in his wisdom is going to harden Pharaoh's heart yet again. And this time, uh, Pharaoh's going to take the bait and, and come after the Israelites. And it's going to end up being total destruction for Pharaoh. And now, Pharaoh, but Pharaoh thinks he's going to get them back. Now, I want to stop here for just a second and, and because we could easily breeze past this and easily kind of look over this, but this, this is kind of a big deal. Well, not just kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. You can picture the morning newspapers like the Egypt Daily Times reading out uh, God versus Egypt finale, right? Today, it's going to be answered. Egypt will know. Israel will know who is their true king. It's all over the newspapers, okay? Up until this point, we have seen God systematically line up the gods of Egypt and take them down one by one by one. And not just in like a small measure, like, you know, you could go up to maybe a child and, and push them down, but the kid gets back up. You shouldn't do that, but you could, right? And they get back up. God has not done that. God has totally destroyed the gods of Egypt. There is no chance of them coming back. There's no chance of anyone looking to that God again and be like, oh, just a moment of weakness. No, no, they're destroyed. And God's done this by himself. And yet there is one more to go though, and that's Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh still somehow in the midst of all this believes that he is God, or at the very least he is a God. But God's gonna let him know that that is in fact not the truth. What's going on here is uh, Israel is in a unique position that they can't even uh, handle this battle on their own, okay? God has pinned them between the wilderness and the Red Sea so that even if they did want to fight and even if they did want to figure this out on their own, they're in no position to do so. So God, again, is making it clear who is going to get the victory in this battle. And it will not be because of Israel's work. It will not be because of any outside presence. It will be because of God himself. I wrote a note here. It says the Israelites will be present, but there will be no confusion as to who wins this battle. And as we get into it this morning, I think you'll see that too. Let's pick up in verse five, and we're going to see things play out just as God said they would. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that his people had fled, excuse me, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let the Israelites go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and he took his army with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea. Okay, so let's jump into this. We see God doing exactly what God said he was going to do. And you kind of see Pharaoh have this kind of freak out moment. One of my favorite movies, and I'm sure it's one of yours as well, is the movie Dumb and Dumber, right? 
Do you remember the scene when Harry uh, uh, leaves Lloyd on the side of the road and he comes riding back up on the little moped? Right, he leaves the Mutt Cuts van and he drives up and, and Lloyd just starts like yelling at him and he says, do you realize what you've done? And all of us are like, yeah, it was the worst move ever. Pharaoh has a do you realize what you've done moment. Do you realize what we've done? As he looks out across his land, as he's looking out at what he has, he's seeing that everyone who once worked for him is gone. And Pharaoh says, you know what? I'm tired of picking my own strawberries. I want somebody else back to do this for me. And he gives chase. He does what any reasonable human being would do, and he fires up his chariots. But not just a few of his chariots. We're told it's 600 of them. It's believed that these chariots could hold up to three men, but at the very least, two men. So we're talking about a driver and an archer, or a driver and a javelin thrower, or a driver and a shield bearer, 600 of them. These are like the tanks of Egypt at the time coming now after the Israelites. He's pursuing them. But that's not all Pharaoh's sins. Verse 9 tells us that they weren't alone. The Egyptians pursued them. It says, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and horsemen, and his army. We're talking everybody. Oh, you're in the academy? Cool. Get in the van. We're going. Oh, you got in fights at Pharaoh High School? You're ready for battle. Get in here. Like, let's go. And it says that they overtook them. And why wouldn't he? The Israelites are camped in the worst possible spot. And as they're camped, they're also weighed down by all the wealth of Egypt. Remember, they plundered them on their way out. And they've got children. And they've got animals. Like, this is possibly the worst planned road trip in the history of road trips. Anything that can go wrong is about to go wrong. But up until this point, we haven't heard much from the people of Israel themselves. We haven't heard much from them. The last we heard, they left Egypt in the middle of the night. They grabbed their bread before it could rise. They plundered the Egyptians, and now they're following the pillar. The people have been pretty quiet, and rightfully so. They should be. They've been rescued. They've been freed from their slavery, and they have seen God absolutely dominate Egypt. You could even go so far as to say that the people at this point are in awe of God. And I want to spend a little time on that word this morning, the word awe, A-W-E. And I want to give us maybe a little better understanding of what the word awe means. So I went to dictionary.com because picking up a real dictionary just would have been too hard, okay? I'm a millennial, okay? Dictionary.com defines the word awe this way, an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. That in and of itself is good, but it's produced by that which is grand, sublime, and extremely powerful. That is an amazing definition of the word all. But I'm a visual learner, and I bet some of you are visual learners too. For those of you that just got it, hold on tight. For those of you that didn't get it, let me try to take us there a little bit more. Do you remember last Sunday morning? Last Sunday morning was the first snow of, well, I guess it's not technically winter yet, but first snow of the season, right? Everybody that has little kids, or maybe those of you that act like little kids, the first thing we did was we ran to the window in the morning, right? And we just stared out. Wow, look at this. It's Instagram worthy. 
One of my favorite Instagram people, uh, Jovi Bakken, there was a picture of her posted. And she was staring out the window. And it was just that perfect picture of awe, like a little girl in her PJs, just wow. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go over to the hospital and visit Sam and Becca Schmidt as they just had uh, their, their baby. And just the look on Becca's face, like she was just glowing, just glowing. She wasn't even holding the baby. Like I was holding the baby, and I was like, Becca's glowing. Like, it was awesome. And you can picture that, like the first time mom or dad or the fifth time mom or dad if you're in Arguello. Like you just, <laughs> that look of awe never goes away. You, you could just picture it. There's all kinds. Let me keep taking you there a little bit. Christmas morning, and there's a new bike under the tree, a new video game, a dollhouse. Picture just a few weeks back the struggling family who was surprised with Thanksgiving dinner being delivered to their door. That look of awe, not being able to really put into words what you're feeling, what you're thinking, but you know that this is a moment that words just can't describe. Imagine the athlete being selected for the draft after all these years of working and working the hits, the weightlifting, and now you're drafted. Picture this. The knockoff phone user finally holding in their hand for the first time their iPhone. Oh. That probably sealed the deal for most of you. Picture the sinner hearing the good news of the gospel for the very first time. You can see it now, right? The look of awe, the feeling of awe, just a person standing there in amazement of what's going on. This is all. And listen, for every single one of us, our lifelong pursuit is that of all. You and I do the things we do on a daily basis in pursuit of all. The truth that the Israelites are displaying for us this morning is where you look for all will shape the direction of your life. Where you look for all will shape the direction of your life. Let me prove it to you this morning through the life of the Israelites and, even, and through the events that are going to play out for them. If you look to verse 10 with me, we're told this. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Do you see what happened? Why did the Israelites so quickly go from awe to fear? In a moment's notice, they're in awe and now fear. Listen to what it says there at the beginning of the verse. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes. The people of Israel changed their gaze. What they had been focusing on, what they had been in awe of, they have taken their eyes off of it, and now they've looked to some other thing. And when this other thing comes in, it strikes fear in their heart. You know the feeling, right? When I was in high school, I was a baseball player, and, and my baseball team my junior year was in this big East Coast baseball tournament. We took uh, time off from school, and we went, and we got in this tournament, and there were schools from all up and down the East Coast in it. And by some way, my team actually made it to the championship game. But something interesting happened. When we were on our way to the ballpark, 
Everybody was excited. We're riding in the big yellow cheese box bus, right? Like we're excited, we're going, and we're like, people are high-fiving each other. They're yelling. They're talking about how great this is going to be. They're hyped up. We're pushing each other around. At one point, we even began to sing. Like, who does that? We were singing. We got off the bus. We, we, we get our bags. We go down to the field. We're ready to play the, games, the game of our life, but something happened. When we got down to the field, the other team was already there, and they were warming up. And as we got down to the field and we looked at the other team, they were some of the largest human beings I have ever seen in my life. Like, I don't know where they came from or what they were fed, but they were huge. And in a moment, my whole team saw it. It was one of those moments where you know where you see something, but you look around to see if everybody else sees something. So we saw them, and it was that, oh, man. And in a moment, we were defeated. We lost that game miserably. Terrible. Like we couldn't do a thing right. And listen, what happened in that moment is we lost our all. We came down to that field ready for battle, ready to fight, ready to play. We were excited, all this stuff, but we changed our gaze. In an instant, fear crept in and it defeated us. Listen, this is the position of the Israelites And understandably, they cry out to God. They quickly go to Moses, but listen how quickly and how far to the other side of the pendulum they go. So they're in awe, they're quiet, they're walking, they're following the pillar, they're being led by day, they're being led by night, they're not saying anything, they're just going, they're just following, they're in awe, and then all of a sudden, the wheels just fall off. And listen to what it says. They get get snarky a little bit with Moses here. They said to Moses, verse 11, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They lost their all. And they lost it bad. They lost it big time. They go from being in awe, they're freed from their slavery, and now all of a sudden when they change their gaze, they look up and they see Pharaoh coming and they say, just why'd you do this to us? How could you do such a thing? We told you to leave us alone. Hmm. They're scared and they lost their awe. You see, awe stimulates our greatest joys but it also stimulates our greatest sorrows. And sometimes those two things can flip-flop in a minute. The easy thing to do here for us this morning, though, is to look at the Israelites and say, these people are so stupid. (laughs) They've seen God do all these things. They've seen God destroy uh, 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 idol after idol, God after God. They've seen him do all these things. They're so stupid. How could they do this? but I want you to think of your own life for a moment. Where do you experience your biggest moments of happiness? And what about your darkest moments of sadness? Like what motivates you to keep going and what makes you feel like quitting? What makes you think your life is worth living? What causes you to feel like it's a waste? When you can answer that question, you'll find where your all is really lying. You see, many of us have never voiced it verbally, but often we think, if I only had 
blank, my life would be better. If I only had this, my life would be better. Maybe it's more success at work. Maybe it's kids that listen to you. A spouse, a car with a hood. (laughs) Kids that listen to me. A bigger house, a diploma on the wall. Kids that listen to me. The promotion I deserve. Maybe just a little bit bigger screen to watch the game on or the voice on or whatever show of choice on. Kids that listen to me. If I only had this, my life would be better. Listen, what we are in awe of tells us what is worth making sacrifices for. What we are in awe of tells us what's worth making sacrifices for. And when the Israelites take their eyes off of the awe of God, it's immediately replaced with the awe of something else. And the same is very much true for us. When we take our eyes off of the awe of God, it's immediately replaced by the awe of something else. What is it that the Israelites want? Like, what are they in awe of? I want to suggest to you that it's the same thing that we are in awe of. And I think it boils down to something really simple. I think we could list a bunch of things, but what the Israelites really want is comfort. They really want comfort. Now, I'm in no way saying the slavery in Egypt was a comfortable thing, but it was predictable. They knew where they stood. They knew what was expected of them. They knew exactly who they were. And now that their comfort is challenged, they want to go back. They want to retreat into the arms of Pharaoh. What about us? How often do you and I, how often do we find ourselves retreating back into the arms of our former slave master? Maybe it'd be good just to sit there for a moment. How often do we find ourselves retreating back into the arms of our former slave master in search of comfort? The people of Israel are scared and they're uncomfortable and they go to their mediator. They go to Moses and they say, fix it, fix it. And listen, Moses has a word for them. We pick up in uh, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. That's a good word. That's a good word. Moses is telling the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be quiet. This is all you have to do. He's saying, this is not your fight. This is the Lord's fight. Listen, Moses hasn't lost his all. Moses remembers what God has done. Moses remembers standing before Pharaoh and seeing the gods of Egypt lined up and dismantled one by one after the other, after the other, after the other, one plague after another. Moses remembers leaving in the middle of the night before his bread could rise. Moses is reminding the people where their all should be. Listen to what he says there in verse uh, 13. See the salvation of the Lord. He's telling them, you're looking in the wrong place. Refocus. Look back. Remember. He says, you have gazed upon the wrong thing and you feared it. Now, listen to how powerful this word would have been to the Israelites. How good it must have been for them to hear in this moment that you don't have to work. 
These are a people that all they know is work, right? They are the originator of Rihanna's song, right? Work, 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 work. That's all they do. That's all they know. It was bad, I know. It's okay. It wasn't even in the notes. It makes it worse. But it's what they do. They are workers. And listen, all too often, it's what we do too. It's what we do too. We often try to work, but what a good word it is to hear that you don't have to work. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Moses goes to God with the cry of the people, and God tells him essentially, well, let's read it, and then I'll tell you essentially. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Let's stop right there. God's kind of saying, hey, hey, we talked about this. We talked about this. Why are you crying out to me? But then in his graciousness, he gives instruction. He gives direction. He says, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now, I'm like you, and I want to know kind of what the meaning of words are, right? Go forward. What is God telling the Israelites to do? So I went, and I looked it up in the Greek. I did a word study, pulled up all kinds of screens and all kinds of neat, fancy things on the study of go forward. And interestingly enough, it means go forward. (laughs) Go forward. That's the instruction. Go forward. Listen, God doesn't intend to leave his people here. He doesn't even intend for them to lift a finger. Just move ahead. Go forward. God tells Moses the plan. You lift your staff. You stretch out your hand. Uh, I guess we didn't read that yet. Let's do that. Verse 16. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Lift up your hand. Stretch it out and divide the sea. Well, listen, honestly, To me, this doesn't sound like a good plan. It just doesn't sound like a good plan to me. So you're telling me, if I'm Moses, I'm going to walk over to the water. I'm going to lift up this staff. I'm going to part the water. That's the plan. Thinking that Now, thankfully, Moses obeys it and goes. But I wonder if I would have pushed back. Just go forward. Lift lift up hands. Okay. But listen, I want you to see why this is God's plan. Look at verses 17 and 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. Listen to this. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Listen to verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I put emphasis on very specific words there for very specific purposes. The plan is this because God says in verse 17, I will get glory. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The plan is simple. God is doing this so that his glory will be put on display and all of Egypt will know that he is the Lord. There will be no doubt, no more questions No more wondering. God will prove once and for all there is no one like him in all the earth. And then we see God just go off in this glory, glorious display here about how powerful he is. Let's jump to verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood 
behind them. So now we see that God is not only guiding his people, he's guarding his people. So he's guiding and guarding. He's literally standing between them and the Egyptians. Moses and the people go forward as directed, and now Moses lifts his hands. Verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was a cloud uh, and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with a strong, by the strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters divided. Listen, verse 21 is a powerful scene. God, this isn't just like a babbling brook of water and God's like placing some rocks in place to kind of dam it up a little bit and then the people got to like kind of tiptoe on rocks that are kind of slippery and we're like, watch out, watch out, be careful, there's a rock. No, 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 no. This is a sea of water and it says that God drives it back. This is a picture of violence. God, as Moses lifts his staff, the water violently begins to separate. Like think of the noise, think of the chaos in the midst of this. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, like you have heard maybe a part of this, uh, like, like loud, thunderous noise, and you just see the water start to part here. It's powerful. Water is literally being pushed back. And it says that the water was a wall on each side of them. Let's keep going. Verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. It's driven up as a city wall, like fortified walls around them. And the people are walking through. God didn't just like put like, (laughs) this isn't something small around the people. It's not a fence. It's not a hedge. It's walls of water on either side of them. And then it goes on to give us a little bit more detail. Dry ground the people walk through on. Like they don't even get their Birkenstocks wet. They walk through on dry ground. This scene is awesome. God's power on display. And think of this, of course God can do this. God right here is showing us the same power that he displayed at the creation of the world. When he's told nothing to do something and it did it, this is that same power now actively dividing the creation. Walls around the people for them to walk through. And just as God had said, look at what the Egyptians do. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. A reasonable person might look at the situation, if you're a reasonable Egyptian, and look at this situation and say, uh, no thanks. I'm good. That's scary. I'm not going in there. I'm not giving chase. But remember, God had hardened their hearts so they would go in after them. Anyone else would be in awe of the scene, but because the Egyptians are in awe of themselves, their hearts have been hardened and they pursue. Foolishly, they go in after, just as God had said they would. Look to verse 24. And in the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Again, there's powerful words in the midst of this. One, notice what God does. It says, God looked down on them. 
We know he's there because we see this pillar and we see the stuff going on, but that's powerful imagery that God looks down on the scene and then it says he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. The word through there is hurl or stir the Egyptians into a panic. They are freaking out. Picture, well, you don't even need to picture it. They're freaking out. Verse 25 goes on, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. Listen, their state-of-the-art chariots bogged down, moving in literal slow motion. They're giving chase. They're coming after them. You can see angry faces and then just, we can't go. Like They're trying and they cannot go. They are stuck. They thought they were going to bring these Israelites back. That's not what's going to play out. For the Egyptians right here, even if they wanted to turn back, they can't do it. They are stuck, and it's exactly where God wants them. The rest of verse 25 says, the Egyptians say, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Do you hear what just happened there? I want you to go back with me real quick to verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. So on one hand, you have the Israelites, they're looking in and they're seeing this. Now, verses 17 and 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after you. And what? And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen, verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know. At the end of verse 25, the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against Egypt. The Egyptians know. They now know who God is is. The Israelites pass through. They're on dry ground. This walls are still, are still up on either side of them. Now Moses comes back. He raises his hands again, and the waters return to their normal state. But the waters don't return to their normal state in just kind of like, a, like shutting off the bath water. It slams down in on top of these people In fact, it says the Lord, again, in verse uh, 26, the Lord said, stretch out your hands over the sea and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hands over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Again, this word threw them. The word there means shook off shook off. You ever have a pet that comes in from being wet? What's the first thing it does? Just all over the house, right? There's water flying everywhere. There's dirt flying everywhere. There's snow flying everywhere. It's actually kind of a violent scene. You're like, water's hitting you in the face. You're like, why did we even get a dog? That's the terminology that's using here. God shook off the Egyptians like fleas on an animal. He throws them into the midst of the sea. The waters return and cover all of Egypt's forces, and not one of them remained. Not one. Now, 
This is the part, honestly, I'm most excited to preach to you. That was fun leading up to this. This part, like, gets it. Look at verse 30. Thus, so as a result of, or therefore, or because of this, the Lord saved Israel. Wait, who saved Israel? Moses did, right? He parted the water. Right? Mother Nature did, right? She had some kind of hand in this, in this and caused this phenomenon, right? Poor military strategy on, on the side of Egypt caused this, right? They should have known better than to chase people into walls of water. No, 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 no. The Lord saved Israel. And listen, this is what God is in the business of doing. He's all about saving his people. All the way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, it was God who made coverings for them. With Abram and Isaac, it was God who provided the ram in the place of Isaac. In the life of Joseph, it was God who took the evil plans of his brothers and worked them for good. When the Israelites left Egypt, it was God that passed over their homes. And now the same is true for us today. It is God who saves us. It is God who delivers us from our slavery to sin through Jesus, just like he did the Israelites from their slavery to Egypt. I want us to look at some interesting parallels between the Red Sea and, and, and our exodus on the cross, so to speak. The Red Sea provides both judgment and salvation. The Israelites were baptized into Moses, just as we are baptized into Jesus. The Israelites were identified with Moses in the same way we're identified with Jesus. As Moses led his people through the waters of judgment, those who are in Christ will pass through the waters of death because of his mighty resurrection. This is exactly what the ordinance of baptism represents, passing from death to life. Our baptism, in a sense, is a picture of us saying, I have died with Christ, I've been buried with him, and now I'm raised with him. Picture that. The Israelites are now saying the same thing as they follow Moses. We passed through with him, and now we've been raised. The Exodus story, though it's an actual historic event, is a picture of what happens to us in salvation and in the Christian life. You see, the Israelites were freed from their bondage to slavery, and we're freed from our bondage to sin. Positionally, both people are free from slavery. The Israelites are free from their slavery to Egypt. We're now free from our slavery to sin. But subjectively, we still struggle with going back to bondage. We struggle with going back to bondage. Our tendency, like the Israelites, as we'll see in the coming weeks as we continue in the book of Exodus, is to fall back into their slavish patterns of our former taskmasters, of their former taskmasters. Some of the Israelites will even go back to working harder and trying to create images and things that will lead them. They attempt to obey rules as if they could keep their salvation, as if their performance ever had anything to do with it. And before we say, oh, silly Israelites, we do the same thing. We work really hard to follow rules. We work really hard to keep our salvation as if it ever had anything to do with our work or our, our effort. We must remember the truth of verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel. The Lord saved Israel. Moses tells the Israelites to be silent in verse 13. In verse 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. You see, salvation is not about what we do. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus. The salvation of the Israelites mattered not what they did. It mattered what God was doing for them on their behalf. 
God saves sinners by grace through faith, not by human works. We see this perfectly pictured through the Israelites right here. There was nothing they did to earn this. The Lord saved them. Romans 4, 3 through 5 says this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, we see here that the Old Testament teaches the same gospel as the New Testament. Grace through faith. This idea makes Christianity different from every other system of belief. Every other system of belief in our world, everyone's trying to get to the other side, but they have to work for it. They have to give money, they have to pray prayers, they have to make a pilgrimage, they have to achieve Zen or any number of other things in order to get to the other side. But in Christianity, God does the work, not the people. God does the work. You embrace him, the work is done. Let me make this a little bit more practical this morning. If I was to come to you and say, are you a Christian? And you answer that question by saying something like, I'm trying. You don't understand the gospel. That is a total misunderstanding of the gospel. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. You simply receive salvation by grace through faith. Think about the Israelites in this scene. If I was to go up to them after they crossed the Red Sea and say, are you saved? And they looked me in the face or one of them looked me in the face and said, I'm trying. What? You would all have that response. That <laughs> you'd shake your head. You'd do any number of things because it would be absolutely ridiculous. You're trying what? God did the work. You walked through. There's no work you need to do. Your level of effort is a non issue. There's no doubt that some of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea this day were scared to death. As they're seeing these walls of water on both sides of them, there's no doubt that some of them were biting their fingernails and some of them were anxiously talking to their husbands like, is it really going to work? Is it really going to matter? They're just scared. And on the other side of that token, there's inevitably Israelites that walked through the midst of that Red Sea with confidence. There's folks that were like, yep, and just had a swagger about it, right? We're going, God's doing this, and they have absolute faith, faith, excuse me. But did you notice? They both walked through. Whether they were scared to death or whether they had absolute confidence, because they are saved by the object of their faith, not the quality of it. They are saved by the object of their faith, not the quality of it. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you have crossed over. Your greatest enemy has been defeated. At the Red Sea, God publicly defeated and shamed Egypt before the people. Listen to this. On the cross, Jesus Jesus publicly defeated and shamed the power of sin. Colossians 2, 12 through 15 words it this way. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers 
and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Listen, what God did at the Red Sea, he did in an even greater final measure on the cross of Christ. As the Israelites look back, it says in verse 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord uh, that he used against the Egyptians. Let me get back up a little bit before that at the end of verse 30. It says uh, that the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Their greatest enemy washing up dead on the seashore. Listen. When the Israelites look back, they see the bodies of enemies washing up. And look at what they did. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and in his servant, Moses. They got their all back. They got their all back. I want to end with kind of just a simple story here this morning. It's kind of funny, but I think it'll drive this point home for us. Years ago, there's a show on TV called World's Dumbest Criminals. You remember this show? And criminals walk into places and they do super foolish stuff. And you just think, how in the world? I was watching one night and it was a 7-Eleven convenience store. And this guy walks in and he had his hand under his coat and he was poking it out. And he went up to the girl at the counter and he said, give me all the money. And he's yelling at this little girl. And she's just a little like 7-Eleven clerk, right? And she just looks at him. And he said, give me all the money. And he's pointing his gun at her. And she said, no. <laughs> and I, like, I did the same thing. I was like, what? And the guy said, give me all the money. And he leaned in real close to her. And he's hollering at her, give me all the money. And she said it again, no. And he said, give me all the money. And he's just yelling. And this little girl picked up a bottle of something on the counter and just, just knocked the dude over the head with it. And the guy stumbles back, and when he did, he put his hands up in the air. He said, no, 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 no. And he started, like, running backwards. And this little girl jumps the counter of the convenience store, and she just chases the dude and just pummels him over and over and over with this bottle. And she had locked the door of the convenience store with the little button, and the, she is just pummeling him. And finally, the dude kicks his way out, and he runs away. But at that time, the police come and save the day, and we see this scene, and they interview the girl afterwards. And they said, why did you do what you did. And she said, I knew he didn't have no gun. And they did the same. They were like, what? She said, I knew he didn't have no gun. And then knowing that he didn't have a gun, her all was not in fear of a fake gun. She knew that he had nothing to use against her. And her all was in a place where she was not fearful of what this man could do. Listen, Second, or excuse me, Colossians there 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Listen, as we look back at the cross of Christ, we see that our enemy, Satan, was publicly defeated, humiliated, put to open shame on the cross. And now as we look back, we see him washing up on the seashore, dead and disarmed, all by the power of God. We don't have to be in awe of any of his works, of any of his doings. We can be in awe of the one who found us worthy enough to send his son to the cross and die on our behalf. We don't have to live a life of fear anymore. 
This morning we can redirect our gaze back to the one who has done all the work for us to have a relationship with him, for us to have freedom from our slavery. God's mighty hand has fought and is fighting and has destroyed the enemy. So church, where is our awe this morning? How long will we continue to look back at our slave master when we have a heavenly father who's already defeated him and given victory over him? Where is your all this morning? As we come this morning to this table, we have an opportunity to renew our all in the one whose flesh was bruised on our behalf. As we come and we take the cup this morning, we renew our all in the one whose blood was shed to deliver us. Remember what God did at the Red Sea. He did an even greater final measure on the cross of Christ for our freedom from slavery to sin. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, as we come this morning, undoubtedly, undoubtedly there are some of us, if not many of us, who have placed our all in the wrong place this morning. We have looked at created things to give us an all instead of looking to the creator. And God, I pray now that as we come to this table, that you would remind us of where our all should be. You have created these things of this world to point us back to you and put us in awe of the one who gives these good gifts to us. God, today, maybe some of us came in not knowing that you've rescued us in an even greater measure than what you rescued the Israelites. Put your son on the cross so that we could have freedom from our slavery to sin. Father, that's the gospel. God, I pray that hearts would hear that this morning. I pray that the walls that we've built up around it, you would soften those. You would speak life into us. Your word says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I'm thankful that you didn't just throw us a life preserver, but you breathed life into our lungs. Dead people don't need life preservers. They need breath in their lungs. And you've done that for us. God, today, again, as we take this bread and as we drink of this cup, may we renew our awe in the one who was willing to break his flesh for us and shed his blood for us so that we might be redeemed. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.